Welcome to To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast. Each week, join Eric Traxler and Carolyn Ford to explore the latest in government cybersecurity news and trending topics. Now, let's get to the point. Good morning. Welcome to To The Point Cybersecurity. I'm Carolyn Ford here with Eric Trexler. Good morning, Eric. Good morning, Carolyn. We have a great guest again today. We do. Mirna Soto, Forcepoint Chief Strategy and Trust Officer. Before coming to Forcepoint, she was a senior manager at American Express and a former corporate senior vice president and global CISO at Comcast and MGM. And this morning, she's going to talk to us about SASE. So casinos, we have finance, we have media and telecommunications. This will be a good one. I think so. Yeah. Welcome to the show, Mirna. Thank you for having me, guys. It's a thrill to be here with you both. So I'll start it off this week, a little different than normal, I guess. Um, you know, as you look back over your career and, and, and you've seen the space evolve, what's, what's the biggest surprise that's come to you? Like, what's, what's snuck up on you? What would you have expected? Yeah, I think one of the biggest surprises is that over the last 10, 15 years, the security industry really hasn't changed too much. You know, we continue to... 15 or 30? Well, you had to go there, didn't you? Well, I'm just going back to 1987 when we saw the first virus. No other commentary. But, but has it really changed materially over the decades? You know, it has changed in some nuanceable fashion. It's changed in the way that we evaluate threats. It's changed in the way that we try to attempt to combat threats. But what hasn't changed is our defense, right? Our defense in depth approach has been around forever. I mean, you said 30 years, you were just dating me in my career, but it has not really changed much. We continue to kind of do the layer cake on how we combat threats and how we deal with attack vectors. Yeah. Very similar to the way the military has approached a lot of things with trench warfare, the, uh, you know, the Maginot line or defensive lines, right? Defense in depth. We'll keep throwing reserves at it, but yeah, cyber is different. Yeah. And they're not full frontal assaults. And what I think I just heard you say, Myrna, is that the adversary has changed. The indeed. defense has not. That's a indeed. little terrifying. Yeah, indeed. I mean, the adversaries have changed and continue to change. Even when we learn about motives and tactics, they continue to evolve. They're very organized. They're very well-funded. Um, so it's definitely something that continues to evolve at a rapid rate and is very difficult to combat against. Now, that doesn't mean that we haven't made strides and that we've improved our defenses over time. I will say that we have improved our defenses over time. We've learned more. We have looked at networks very differently. Um, and the defense in depth approach has served us moderately well, but hasn't really been the silver bullet to put us in a position of accurate and proactive defenses. We still, we still are very reactionary. Well, and I think time has proven since the first virus, we've been spending more money. We've been spending more effort and we've been doing a better job, but we've been getting further and further behind the adversary. They're stealing more information. They're impacting our businesses. They're sabotaging our systems. And, and I'm not talking the United States anywhere. I mean, if, you know, there, there's a, there's a common phrase in the cybersecurity industry, um, something to the effect of, you know, they're the people who have been hacked and the people who don't know they've been hacked. Right. 
Yeah, unfortunately, that is such a true statement. Um, We've often said you just don't know you've been hacked yet. And then by the time you realize it, the amount of dwell time that the adversaries have had in your environment is really the most embarrassing and most crippling thing about these attacks. I mean, I've been in many different industries of which have had a very significant amount of activity against them. So to sit here and say we never had any attacks. No, we had attacks all day long. We had attacks at a a volumetric pace. But the difference was how quickly can you detect those attacks from happening? How can you quickly contain them um, once they're discovered? And I think that's the Achilles heel for many organizations where they're looking at their detection mechanisms in a certain way, reacting to what I like to call uh, the sea of logs and events where a really more adaptive and intelligent way of looking at what are these attacks meaning to me? Where are they coming from? What are the motives? What are the adversaries actually looking for, for me to apply different adaptive defense techniques? So adaptive, are we talking like AI? We are, we are. You know, I'm reluctant to use that term because unfortunately it's been an overused term in many areas of the technology stacks. But at the end of the day, it is about learning. It's about learning predictive behaviors. It's about understanding the pattern of adversaries and sometimes the pattern of our own users to understand where is there some anomaly in place. And as much as we can automate that so that we don't have to have a human being, an analyst, determine good, bad, or indifferent, um, I think that's where we have the greatest amount of opportunity. And then... As, as you look back over your career, are there things you would have done sooner, things you would have done differently, maybe knowing what you know now as a, as a chief strategy and trust officer and knowing where we are or where we're not maybe with AI? You know, um, absolutely. So I'll give you an example. Uh, in one of my previous lives, we spent a lot of time trying to coalesce the enormity of the intelligence that we had within our network. Um, Having been one of the largest internet service providers in North America, you can imagine how much data we had about the traffic in our environment. Now, having been a consumer facing entity, we had a number of privacy regulations that we were adhering to and we stood by for our customers. So the depth of what what we call in the industry, deep packet inspection of the network traffic Um, was limited because there was a privacy boundary that you never wanted to cross. But there were so many opportunities to get the macro data and to be able to share that data for proactive defenses across the industry. And that's something, you know, we spoke about from 2012 into 2016 about how could we do that as a collective industry. Now, and in my role now, I'm hoping to not only work with with the team at Forcepoint, um, but the product teams and all of the, all of the teams that are focused on this to figure out how can we do that at a grand scale. And I'm happy to say that we already are making some major strides in that fashion. So, when you were at Comcast, you you wanted to share the data. Did did you on any level? We did. Um, we did at a very macro level as part of yeah. a collective consortium of telecom and internet providers, you know, under a very strict protocol with completely anonymized information. 
Um, and by the way, that creates some difficulties when you want to defend against them when they're completely anonymous and you cannot uh, go back and identify attribution. But at least we were able to identify trends that were happening in the industry so that our partners could defend against them and vice versa. Um, I think from a national security perspective, that was one of the that was one of the enormous things that we were able to do to protect that piece of critical infrastructure. And are you talking the ISACs then, the information sharing and analysis centers? Yeah. So from your perspective, they're somewhat effective? You know what? Some are more effective than others. Ours, because we were part of the communications ISAC that we created during those years that I just quoted. Um, You know, we had a lot of growing up to do as far as how we were going to manage information sharing. The biggest challenge for us, you know, the financial services ISAC had a much, you know, was way ahead of their time across across the industries. But even they would say, hey, we still are kind of limited to how much we can share. There's the potential for the inference of competitive data being shared. There is the potential that uh, consumers could say, hey, what are you doing with my data? And even today, when we think about the Googles of the world, the Amazons of the world, people are concerned about that. And you asked me before, what, what should we have done sooner was being able to tackle the trust aspect of how data and analytics are used to defend. Now, granted, there have been companies that have misused data that have not necessarily honored their commitment to their customers. It makes it that much harder. Um, but here at Forcepoint, one of the things that I'm working on is establishing that trust uh, framework and paradigm for the company. So then when we talk about how we use analytics, how we use data collected from a threat landscape, that our customers know that it is protected, pseudomized, so that we can go back and attribute who the, who the attribution is, um, but certainly safeguarding in the trust of the, how we're using the data, how we're securing the data, and how that data will never be used against them in particular. It's amazing. There are two words in cyber that come up over and over again, over my years of experience, at least trust and risk. Yeah. Like they're just, they're, they're two simple words. If, if you go back to the beginnings of time, they describe components of everyday society, but they come up in cyber over and over and over again. And they're very difficult concepts to wrap your, or, or words, I guess, to wrap your head around when you're talking cyber operations, Right. In this case, who do you, do you give data to your competitors so that they can be, you know, safer, so, but you can learn from them? Do you, do you give data to, to, you know, how much data do you give? How do you make sure you're not, like you were saying, not yeah. give them something in, of competitive advantage when you're just trying to make the world a safer place? Yeah. I can't imagine those, those discussions. I'll tell you, they were they were discussions that went on for years, and I'm sure continue to do so in the industry that I was in prior. Probably in all industries. All, all of them. But when you think about attacks against infrastructure, it is irrelevant. The service, the customer, or the transaction, that's where the competitive landscape comes into place, right? If I'm revealing my customer, I'm revealing the service that I'm offering that may be under attack, you know, you don't want to do that, again, from a competitive perspective. But when you're able to identify trends, either regionally or tactics, or some reverse engineered malware that you've been able to attribute to the industry 
You know, those are types of things that you want to share. Why? Because it's the right thing to do for our national infrastructure. Again, speaking of uh, a critical infrastructure type of industry. But I will tell you that for security, the number one thing that assists people to be much more effective in their defenses is intelligence. You are obviously much more intelligent when you have trending data analytics, and to your point, risk data that is greater than your own enterprise. And I think that's one of the things from a government perspective, the agencies have been able to do quite well, right? They've got such a large scale purview to be able to identify things at a rate and at a depth that not one single enterprise can do on their own. Did the government help you though? Caroline, I'll let you get in in a second here. Did the, did the government help you? Did they facilitate that info sharing? Were they, were they beneficial to you or was it more the industry coming together? I've, I've seen so much friction. Maybe it's a leaded, leading question. I don't know. Yeah. I've well, seen so much friction between the government and industry. What do we industry share with the government? Yeah. What does the government well, want to share with us or there's can? There's been a, a lot of reasons to mistrust, right? Through the yeah. years between government and industry. I will tell you, um, through my experience, and this now encompasses multiple industries, because while I was this CISO at uh, MGM Resorts in Las Vegas, we were heavily regulated, of course, and we dealt significantly uh, with the Secret Service on anti-money laundering and treasury. We had a lot of governmental agencies that we worked with directly. It's amazing the amount of activity, terrorist activities, it actually can happen through the casino infrastructure just to launder funds mm. and to be able to distribute funds for the support of these um, unfortunate adversaries. In that industry, there was a lot more collaboration for obvious reasons. It was all about currency. It was all about cash movement. It was about where it was going. And it was about being able to identify the large sums of money that would tra- traverse the, um, the infrastructure of the casinos. In the Telecommunications and communication space, speaking about the internet services and things of that nature, it's a little bit different. It was unfortunate that we did not receive as much information as we would have liked from the government. However, we were very much a cooperative to share information with the government. Um, You know, very often there are investigations that happen at a national security level. The internet, unfortunately, is being used to communicate on multiple forms. So being able to participate, that was a no-brainer, you know, in the, in the spirit of national security, when we needed to under the, the proper legal structure, we did. I just wish we would have gotten more in exchange. I think that that should be changing a lot more, but for whatever reason, there is just not that productive two-way information yeah. sharing that we would love to see. And I think anybody in any industry would say the same thing. But you're saying gaming actually was much tighter. They were. They were much tighter. And I think it was because it was simpler in the sense that there was no real competitive or consumer perception that something egregious may have been happening with the government. You know, it was about things as simple. I mean, I know it sounds simple, but it's very complex. But it's as simple as, you know, the WG reporting for casino winnings. You know, it's a... It's a regulation. you got to do it. There were mechanisms in place. Everyone that comes into the casinos know that's happening. So if those WGs were investigated to 
find patterns because Eric happens to always have a large amount week over week over week and seems to be odd. You know, there, it would not be seen as a distrusting activity. Right. right. But if I came in and drop half a million dollars on the blackjack table. We're watching you. Yeah, good. <laughs> Interesting. So, I've never thought about it like that. Carolyn? Well, I was just going to say, in addition to better and faster information sharing, what else should we be doing to improve our cyber defenses? I mean, defense in depth has been around a long time. It has a nice ring to it. Do we throw it out? So no, we don't. We don't throw it out because there's always going to be table stakes and there's always going to be layers of the cake that you're, you're always going to want to utilize. Um, when I speak of it not changing enough, I think back to my years as a practitioner and a Comcast, we were running about 50, 60 point products across the enterprise. And we did so at a, at a large scale with a humongous team in order to support that. And in this day and age, it's really hard to sustain organically such a large team in many of these enterprises. So rationalizing the number of tools and moving parts that we use to defend, I think, is where we need to go. And we're, we're headed in that direction. And some of our listeners may have heard us refer to SASE um, as an architecture and a framework that, that we are really working towards to kind of converge a lot of capabilities into single platforms, not to replace everything, but to be able to rationalize a subset of capabilities in a converged platform and eliminate the complexities of the moving parts, you know, the touch points and the ability to gather data at a much more holistic perspective, even if it's just for a subset of controls. But do you believe SASE will be the, you know, a consolidation driver in the security industry? I mean, we have thousands of companies doing thousands of different things. I, I couldn't imagine being a CISO today. Where do I start? What do I buy? How do I implement it? What are my priorities? Do I understand risk? Yeah. And then how do I make it work together, to yeah. your point? So I think if, uh, if you're a CISO today, depending on what industry you're in, you're going to have the layer cake that is a must-have. There are certain industries where you're going to have must-have layer cake as far as your defense in depth, which is probably going to be generated by your regulatory construct or some compliance construct. But when it comes to the SASE play, the converged platform, the best approach is to understand where do you have the greatest amount of opportunity to consolidate capabilities, whether it be data protection capabilities, user access capabilities, and or your edge. You know, when we think about the edge, the network edge, that has radically changed. What is the network edge today? It's all over. You know, we're all working remote. There's a ton that we've blurred the lines of the network edge. So how do you protect against that? So those are the kind of like the areas where, whether it's data edge, and then really a primary piece is how do you protect your users? You know, we, we, we've often talked at Forcepoint um, that many of the static best, quote unquote, best in breed solutions out there from a defense perspective has forgotten about the user, forgotten about how does the user transact? How does the user use data? What is the movement of a user? What is an anomalous behavioralistic pattern of the user? And when I say user, it could be a machine, a, you know, a service account, a user, a third-party provider. So I think as a CISO today, you've got to ask yourself, 
where can I consolidate my capabilities around how I manage my users? How can I consolidate my capabilities around how I manage my edge network protection? And how can I consolidate my capabilities around data? So, you know, DLP is a, a known um, function in the, in the security space with, you know, varying levels of success. You know, DLP alone isn't the answer. It's how do you manage the risk of the data that's being used? How do you apply adaptive policies to those data movements? And how do you contain any type of anomalous behavior? Is SASE the solution for all of that consolidation that you're talking about? Is that what SASE is, I guess? Well, think of SASE as a framework and an architecture. And the real, uh, the real icing on the cake for SASE is that it is facilitated via the cloud. And what that allows people to do when I talk about all these other things to look at data user and edge is how quickly can you stitch these things together. And SASE actually is not stitching it, it's actually converging it. Uh And to converge this natively on-prem with physical boxes and physical servers and physical capabilities, can it be done? Sure, but it's quite expensive, very hard to scale, and the time to value is where SASE comes into play. You can accelerate your adoption via SASE architecture in the cloud or a hybrid approach. So I do believe that SASE and the approach of SASE on the Converge platform is what will get us there sooner and that will allow us to use a lot of the behavioral dynamics and behavior analytics, I should say, to facilitate the actions of these different control points. But it's confusing. It's complex. Mm -hmm. If I'm a smaller organization, where do I start? If I'm a larger organization, where do I start? And it's predominantly focused on the cloud, as I understand. So how do I now dovetail my on-prem, more traditional, which I still need to keep modern security technologies in with SASE and not have it just be another marketing buzzword? I mean, if you if you search on SASE, every vendor out there has their, their play on it now, right? Because that's what we do. But how do I bring that all together? Well, I think you start small. I mean, I think you start with one capability, one of the three that I mentioned, whether it's edge protection and cloud-based firewalls and things of that nature, or user or data. And the brilliance of the SASE approach is you don't have to sit there and rewrite everything. You could take your on-prem policies and migrate them to the cloud. What the cloud should offer you and will offer you is the depth of scalability at a much more efficient cost basis. You don't have to have the capital investment of having to maintain your physical on-prem assets. It also gives you the capability to integrate with some of the other converged platforms at a much rapid rate. That's really the, that is really the, the coup de grace of the SASE framework and why the migration of taking these security capabilities to the cloud. I mean, if you think about the cloud, when we first started talking about the cloud way back when, we were talking about compute and storage. And storage took off a bit faster than mm-hmm. compute, right? And that was based on a trust factor. It's like, well, I'm willing to put certain data in the cloud, but I'm not, I'm not willing to put all of my data in the cloud. And then compute came into play, and then there was an immediate economies of scale that came into play for 
security and the Converge platform via the SASE-based architecture and framework, there is a, a significant economy of scale versus the point product physical asset management that we all have been living through today. But if you're, you know, if you're a small enterprise, you know, there are ways to kind of migrate into the SASE infrastructure. It could be web content filtering. It could be SASE, you know, cloud-based services for, for CASB. It could be DLP in the cloud. We call it a little different, but DLP in the cloud. Um, so there's a number of ways to approach it. I think that once people adopt the cloud-based service and they adopt the Converge platform, it'll quickly it'll quickly grow a lot of legs because there will be no reason for you to manage 70 products. Then you may go from 70 to 35, but guess what? That's still a great reduction. It's a huge improvement. Huge. So going back to trust and risk, really mm-hmm. you have to you have to trust the cloud service provider. You have to cl- trust your security providers and moving your data into the cloud. You've got to be able to understand risk around your applications. Same old time, time, you know, forever concepts, right? Yeah. Yeah. And risk is one of those concepts we've talked about in the security field a lot, quite a bit. Oh, I feel like we don't. I feel like half my customers, they don't even, they have no understanding of the risk of, of different assets, different applications. They're just starting to talk about it. Interesting. Okay, good. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, one of the, 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 the critical advantages to looking at a risk-based approach is noise, right? You have all of these signals. You have all of this noise in the system. You get data from all these point products. You get data from all your logs. And how you sit there and you look at everything, you say, okay, what's the so what to my business? What is the right. so what, what really to matters? What I what really matters. And the risk-based approach allows you to kind of reduce the noise and really now harness in true risk-based signals. Because you can have things happening in your world that could create an alert, meaning that you have to tune a policy or you have to tune an engine. But we're spending so much time over here looking at all this noise and, and right under our nose is an adversary that is, tr- is doing lateral movements across our enterprise. Uh, the story of our lives, Carolyn. I know. And, and time is beating us as usual. Um, as I'm listening to you, though, Myrna, I keep hearing um, you going back to your original point of the need for that effective, fast information sharing. And I think I heard you say that, like, SASE is going to really enable that. It's one of the pieces. Like, that's the queen, Right. That information sharing, that's, that's the key. And one of the ways that we can combat the challenges of point-to-point information sharing is the ability to use technology, and I will use the buzzword of the, of the decade, artificial intelligence, machine learning, right? To be able to look at the analytics of users and activity monitoring, and again, anonymized, right? So who it is really doesn't matter at that first layer, it may matter later on when it's proven to be a legitimate threat or legitimate adversary. But being able to use technology to facilitate that information sharing, that event and risk-based sharing, I think solves the issue of, oh, uh, company ABC is talking to company, you know, DEX. You know, what are they saying? What are they sharing with one another? If we're able to take the data that we're able to collect and to be able to identify as true risk-based threats to certain companies, 
and share that systematically without any attribution to individuals, I think that's a huge game changer in the industry. I think it's huge. Now, I'd also say we need to do the same thing within organizations, within applications, with your, your cloud service provider and, and other people, right? I mean, organizations I've experienced have had challenges. You know, they may see something in one network or, or one application, but they don't share that across the board either very well today. And that's an area where artificial intelligence, machine learning, some level of, we'll just call it automation, I think can make a difference within the org as much as outside. Amen. Amen. Uh, one of the tactics uh, used in the past to protect, and we call, you know, building moats, right, was network segmentation. Mm-hmm. And, and in one in, you know, in various industries, you could do a network segmentation where your PCI applications, you know, are firewalled and they're segmented away from other components of your network where other back office applications operate. Another great one would be in the energy sector, right? In the energy sector, there is a, you know, a very controlled operational controlled network that is around energy delivery and um, transmission, right? Transmission delivery. And then you have the enterprise over here segmented. The challenge there is that the lack of ability to talk, not transact, but to talk and learn from each other. And to your point, use some, and I use a term that is, is very native to us internally at Forcepoint, the cross-domain capabilities. That is another area where I think we have some really great advances in front of us. I feel like we, we just brought up about four or five more topics for new shows, but unfortunately it. we're going to have to leave it here. Thank you so much for your time today, Myrna. Myrna, thank you. No, thank you both. This was a lot of fun. I look forward to doing it again. Excellent. We will definitely have you back. So thanks to our listeners. Join us next week. Until then, do your updates. Thanks for joining us on the To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast, brought to you by Forcepoint. For more information and show notes from today's episode, please visit www.forcepoint.com slash govpodcast. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Google Play Store 